0: Guys, it really is the case, and maybe this week in some ways helps us see things this way a little bit more clearly, but it really is the case that the tug of war between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world is a very real thing. Scripture says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Our enemy, Scripture says, is the father of lies, and he's actually very good at deception, He's a very effective deceiver and destroyer. It may even be said that right now his primary task is to wreak as much destruction and havoc inside of God's creation and God's humanity as he possibly can. The catch is, is that you and I know something. We know how the story ends. Guys, God wins. His children are saved. Satan and his minions are cast into eternal punishment, and we will be in the presence of the Lord forever. What a beautiful song we sung at the end of worship. Now, even though we know the ending, you can read all about it in Scripture, all over the place, not just the very last book of the New Testament, but even though we know the ending, we also know that our daily lives between now and then can be filled with difficulty and loss and sorrow and confusion and frustration. And it's not just us and in the world in which we live, but so it was for the Thessalonians as well. Their lives were full of death and loss and confusion. And it turns out that as we continue to read through this book, we learn that there were some among them who were using the doctrine of the day of the Lord to spread fear and alarm and concern amongst the Christians. So, what Paul does is he writes to correct that, to sort of bring some clarity and some redirection of that to bring people back to true north. And what Paul does is he wants to help them, and he obviously wants to help us as well, find a better reaction to these kinds of things instead of worry and fear. And to find a better way of living as Christians until Christ comes. So, a lot of what we read in this, what is really a very interesting passage of Scripture this morning, is that Paul gives us just enough information about the day of the Lord to give us rest about it. Some understanding, some direction. God is in charge. He gives us enough to give us rest about the day of the Lord, but not enough, it turns out, to let us begin to set dates and become even more anxious. Remember, scripture is clear. We're not allowed to do that. We can't do that. We can't set dates. It turns out that there are things that need to happen before the day of the Lord comes, and actually, an individual who needs to come to power before the day of the Lord comes. But then Paul Paul also tells the church what they what we should do until then. The title of our series in First and Second Thessalonians has been the Church Now and Forever. There's so much in these two books about the day of the Lord and what Christ is going to do and and what's going to happen when he comes, but it's not just then. Paul always talks about what we do now in the context of what's going to happen then. Does that make sense? What happens then makes a difference to the way that we live now. And so here's part of what Paul says to us this morning. Until then, the church learns to love truth, to stand firm, to teach the faith and to find comfort in our great God. So let's begin reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, Or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So now Paul is going to deal specifically with this doctrine concerning the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to be with him. And this is biblically this doctrine of the day of the Lord, this phrase that's shown up a few times inside of these two books. It's a phrase that the Old Testament and the New Testament use to talk about God's plan for the end of human history as we know it and the beginning and the coming of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. So when we use a phrase like the day of the Lord, we're not talking about a single 24-hour period. We're talking about a set of events that in some ways last for actually quite a while until that moment when Christ comes Establishes his reign, affects justice, and reigns in perfect eternity. So you see, guys, this is a grand and sweeping story. It literally pulls all of human history together into one focal point. So this is, this is quite the deal. And as such, this story of the coming of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord, is often subject to a lot of doctrinal misleading. It's subject to a lot of fear and anxiety and worry and people who teach inappropriate things about the day of the Lord. But in the end, it is the story of the one true God bringing all of his creation and all of his children back into perfect and eternal relationship with him. It really is an incredible story. But there are those who use this doctrine to spread unbiblical, very unbiblical ideas, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. But this is what happens, and this is what Paul is worried about with the Thessalonians, and it has continued to happen for 2,000 years. We could actually spend a lot of time talking about the ways in which this doctrine has gone wrong inside of the church. One rather famous example of that is The founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses predicted that the end of the world, the day of the Lord, was going to happen in 1874. When it did not happen in 1874, he went back and corrected his math and said, oh, I was wrong, it's going to happen in 1914. When it didn't happen in 1914, his successor said, oh, we were wrong about what we meant by the day of the Lord. What it is is a secret, invisible coming of the Lord. It really actually happened. It's just that most of you missed the coming of the day of the Lord. We go on and on and on. Some of you may remember a book written 30 years ago called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come in 1988. He didn't. (laughs) Right? This doctrine for some reason grabs us in this way. And there are those among us who want to use it for unbiblical purposes. So when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he is emphatic about how to deal with this. In fact, scholars will say that most of the language in chapter 2 is almost hurried language. He's so emphatic about this issue. He really doesn't want them. He really doesn't want us to be, as he puts it, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed about the day of the Lord. Some people in Thessalonica had spread the word that the day of the Lord had already come and that's gonna cause anxiety and worry. They had pretended to speak for Paul. They had pretended that they had some kind of special insight that Paul and Timothy and Silas didn't have. Or maybe they'd even had a unique vision from the Lord that no one else had had. And Paul says, guys, all of it is false. So Paul reminds them, remember what we taught you. Remember what we talked about with the day of the Lord and stick to it. Now remember, Paul has told us twice already in the first of these two books that this doctrine is intended for encouragement to each other, each other not worry and anxiety At the end of chapter 4, he says, so now encourage each other with these kinds of words. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11, he says, so encourage each other and build each other up even more as you are doing so now. This doctrine is intended to be encouragement for the children of God. So what he does through the middle of the rest of this chapter is he takes time to remind them of two significant events that need to happen first before the day of the Lord comes. Now, as we read through this, there's, something, there's another dynamic that you and I need to be aware of. Paul, as he writes, is relying on the time that he spent with the Thessalonians. So he's going to tell them, so you remember what we talked about when we were with you, right? So you know what we said about this. The catch is, is that he doesn't explain that. So he relies on their communication when they were together. And you and I are over here watching that communication without all of the details. So as we go through this chapter, we need to be clear where Paul is clear about these matters, and we need to be careful where we don't have all of the data. Does that make sense? Some places are absolutely and abundantly clear. In other places, we wish we knew more, but we just don't. But this is what God has given us so, as Paul continues to write to these Christians, we pick it up in verse 3 and he says this. We're going to read a, a whole chunk of scripture here, so stick with me. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. We should create a line of Christian mugs that have that verse of Scripture on it. I think that's, I think that's a good one. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's a lot, right? There's a lot to kind of walk through with a passage of Scripture like this. but Paul begins by saying this, let no one deceive you in any way about what the day of the Lord is going to be like and what has to happen before the day of the Lord actually comes. So this is actually one of the most straightforward passages in Scripture about this set of events. In the sermon notes that we produced for you this week, if you didn't grab some, there's some on the, uh, the, the wall rack just outside of the doors there. But I've given you a lot of other passages of Scripture in the New Testament that deal with this same kind of thing. And you can track some of those things down and put some of the rest of this story together. But this is one of the most straightforward passages about this set of events. Now, while Paul addresses this with an unusual amount of specificity, We're still left not knowing everything we want to know. You kind of heard that language where Paul says, now we talked about this and you know what this is, right? So he's specific in a lot of ways, but we're left with some questions in this passage of Scripture. Now, Paul does not lay the thing out as we read it in chronological order. So here's what I want to do: I want to plot this out in four steps. This is, if you will, the chronology of the events that we just read in this passage of scripture. First of all, there is something currently in place that's holding all of this back. God has arranged things so that there is something at work in this world that's holding all of this back. And while all of this has to do with the coming of the lawless one and the power of Satan, we need to understand this as we go through this. God is still sovereign over this entire set of events. So God has something in place that's holding all of this back. Secondly, Paul tells us that a great rebellion must take place. The Greek word for rebellion there is the word from which we get apostasy. In fact, some of your translations will actually call it a great apostasy against God. Third, in connection with the great rebellion, a man of lawlessness will be revealed. And he turns out to be in scripture the pinnacle or the focal point of that rebellion against God. And then the fourth thing that happens in this passage of scripture is that, as Paul puts it, the Lord Jesus will come and he is going to settle the whole thing. And then, when we're done with this passage of Scripture, we're going to read, as Paul writes, a sort of, so in the meantime, here's what I want you to do. So I kind of plots out what we just read in this passage of Scripture. Now I want us to go through it as Paul tells this story in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So the day of the Lord, he says, has not come. I believe still has not yet come because two very specific things have not happened yet. First of all, unless the rebellion comes first, he says in verse three. This rebellion, again, is this word that we have for apostasy, Now in Paul's world, the word apostasy is used to talk about political and military upheaval. You could use that word in Paul's word, in Paul's world, to talk about the way a civil war or a military coup may begin. A governmental upheaval. But it is also a word that speaks to not just military upheaval or political upheaval, but speaks to moral and religious upheaval as well. Individuals or a group of individuals who rebel against the moral order. So in Scripture, the word apostasy is often used to speak of that individual who rebels against the religious authority, the moral authority of God. As Paul writes this in chapter 2, he has both of these meanings in mind. So, in context, both of these kinds of rebellions are in view. He tells us and Scripture tells us that there will be a final and massive turn against God by humanity. You can read that story in Psalm chapter 2, in Revelation chapter 19. The Old and New Testaments both tell us that there will come a point when all of the nations of the world are arrayed in battle against God. So that's a rebellion in the most political military sense of the word against God. But it also speaks of this lawlessness, this sin. It is a rebellion against the authority of God, the moral and the religious authority of God. It is no coincidence that many of the political philosophies that are popular amongst human beings squeeze out religious and moral authority of the church the, the greater and grander a government goes, when it, be, when it begins to collect more and more power into, its, in, into itself, the other power structures in a culture have to diminish. And one of those power structures in a culture is the authority of the church or even religious freedom. So it's, it's not a coincidence that throughout human history that when this happens, just even inside of a political system, one of the first voices in a culture that has to be suppressed is the voice of the church, You see it as a governmental rebellion and it is even eventually a religious rebellion against God as well. It's not just something that shows up here, but this thought, this idea of rebellion against God in the last days um, is in several places in scripture. In the epistle of Jude in the New Testament, verses 17 and 18, he says this, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time, there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. In the last days, we're going to have a lot of scoffers, and this is what they do. They rebel against the moral order of God. Peter puts it like this in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I love phrases like that. What else are scoffers going to come with? Well, scoffing, I guess. Following their own sinful desires. So notice again this rebellion against God. They even put it in terms of in the last days. Don't be thrown by this, they're telling us, because you know now that this is going to happen. So there's going to be a great rebellion. Then Paul then also adds in verse three that a man of lawlessness will be revealed. Some of your translations just call him the man of sin. That's the word that is used to describe him. This person becomes the pinnacle, the focal point of rebellion against God, the public face of the assertion of human power over and against God himself. This is who this individual is. This is the man that we often call the Antichrist, and this is not the only passage of Scripture that deals with him. There are several others. But where do we get that term, antichrist? Well, it comes from John the disciple. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, listen to how he talks about this. By this you know the Spirit of God. So here's how you know what is coming from the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So every honest confession of belief that Jesus is God in flesh comes from the Spirit of God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now remember Paul told us that this guy will actually oppose himself against every so-called God and even set himself up as God himself. John finishes that phrase by saying, which you heard was coming, so in one sense it's still on its way, but in another sense it's here now, and now is in the world already. Paul's going to tell us the same thing about the spirit of lawlessness. So this man of lawlessness, even in this passage of Scripture, he has these titles, he has these roles that are given to him by Paul. He's the man of lawlessness. He embodies rebellion against God. The man of sin, again, as many of your translations will put it. Paul calls him the son of destruction. Now, that's a special Hebrew idiom. It's it's a metaphor, and what it means is this. He is the man doomed to destruction. Not the man who brings destruction, but the one who is doomed for destruction. So even though he shows up in all of this demonic power, we know now he's doomed for destruction. Paul tells us that he proclaims himself to be God. So this is the ultimate apostasy, the ultimate rebellion against God, the ultimate blasphemy, sin, to not only deny God, but to try to put yourself in his place and have others view you or worship you as God. One of the things that I've run across through the years is as, as, you know, I I spend a lot of time with with Christians, and we start talking about passages of Scripture like this, and there have been several through the years who have worried, uh, as the Thessalonians were worrying, that all of this had already happened. The Antichrist has already shown up, the Day of the Lord is happening, I'm really worried about this kind of stuff, and it becomes this source of anxiety. I, I want us to be as clear as we can about stuff like this. Scripture tells us that when this dude shows up, it will be as clear as day. It's not an invisible day of the Lord or a secret day of the Lord. He is going to come with unique kind of demonic power. And on top of that, we learn this in Scripture, there will be a great deal of public opinion and momentum behind him and his work. So we've we've got to put that in context. Imagine your favorite cable network and set of political pundits, one day all of them whom you've agreed with and liked for years and years and years, deciding that this dude is it. There's going to be a great deal of public opinion and momentum behind this guy and his work. It's not going to be subtle. We're going to see it <clears throat> he completes the trajectory of humanism, this philosophy at work among us. And it's not just that there is no God, but the philosophy of, of humanism teaches that humans are the pinnacle of evolution and what there is in all of the universe. So in some of its more extreme forms, humanism teaches not just that there is no God, but that we are God. And this guy eventually says, "I am God." But Paul tells us, though that's the end of the trajectory, the trajectory has already begun. He says in verse 7 For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work among us. Our sin has built into us the drive to deny God and to take his place. But there's something about the set of events that involves this guy in the great rebellion that makes this a unique period of time. So Paul even tells us that his coming will be filled with very real satanic power. In verse 9, he says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, filled with wonders, power, and mighty workings, right? Now, what's interesting about that language is this. These miracles that he speaks of in that passage of Scripture are actual supernatural power events. They're not magic tricks. They are actual supernatural works by Satan, and many will be deceived. Now, how many of you are still with me? All right? Let's, let's, let's stick. We have to walk through this because Paul's going somewhere for you and me. Many will be amazed and deceived by this, so we're going to learn that the disciple of Jesus Christ needs to know how to not be deceived. The disciple of Jesus Christ has tools at their disposal to not be deceived by this kind of stuff. So Paul then had, already, had actually told them in verse 6, and you know what's holding all of this back. Okay, there's something God has in place that's restraining all of this. He says this in verse six. Now here's where there's one of those moments where we think, okay, so the Thessalonians knew what that was. Paul actually revealed it to them. We don't know. And given what we can read in scripture about this and the day of the Lord and what all of this means, there really is no way to say what this is with 100% certainty. So here's where we need to be clear about this. God has arranged it so that something is is in place holding back this avalanche of rebellion. God is still sovereign, okay? God is holding the door shut. And when God decides the door is gonna be open, he will open the door. And then when it comes time for that door to be shut again, he will shut the door, okay? God is still sovereign. This thing that is... Um, restraining the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. There are all kinds of guesses as to what it is. Maybe a certain period of time in which God's grace works in a unique kind of way to keep this from happening. Some guess maybe it is even angelic work. We can read um, a taste of this in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 10. Is there something in the spiritual realm that's at work that's holding all of this back? We don't know. Is it the church itself? And then when the church is removed Maybe that is the opening of the door. There's some guesses out there, but we just don't know with 100% certainty. But we do know this. In verse 8, Paul says, when this guy comes in all of his power and all of his might, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. You want to read Revelation chapter 19 if you want to read part of that story and some of the details involved in that story. See, Paul says this man rises to power. He has the force of the world behind him. They rise in rebellion against God, and then Jesus just takes care of it all. So this is that fourth step in this plot. The Lord Jesus will come and settle the whole thing. So you and I have a couple of lessons to take home about stuff like this. First of all, humanity will rebel against God and be deceived, so we need to not be deceived, right? We need to learn how that works, and then secondly, that God is sovereign over all. So guys, God has all of this timing set. He's the one who knows, and he does know when this will begin and when this will end, so he is sovereign. He's restraining the series of events until this time and he will put a final end to humanity's rebellion against him. Guys, in the end, and this is the kind of thing that I think we need to keep at the forefront, every time we read a passage like this, have to talk about a passage like this, we've got to remember this. Our God is great. He is great in might, in wisdom, in power, and his judgments are always righteous and true. God is sovereign over all. He is great. Paul speaks of many being deceived, and he answers a question, how is it that so many are deceived? He says this in verse 10, the coming of the lawless one, or excuse me, verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. God lays his truth out there for humanity to see it and to respond to it. The Scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament are clear on this, that God has made Himself known to humanity, both in His righteousness and glory and power and in His mercy and in His kindness. But the human heart loves darkness rather than light. This is the work of sin inside of us. This is how it does what it does. So what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. What does sin do? Sin causes me to love darkness rather than light. It causes me to love the things that do me and others destruction instead of loving the things that are good for God and good for us. This is what sin does inside of the human heart. We know John chapter 3 verse 16. We know that verse of scripture. A couple of verses later in John 3, 19, Jesus says this, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And friends, we need to understand this. We're not just talking about all of those people. We're talking about what the work of sin does inside of Phil's heart, inside of our hearts, which is why we need to be attentive to these things. The scripture teaches and I think the human condition teaches us this. The further we walk into darkness, the less likely it is we're even going to want to see the light. We grow comfortable with the darkness. We like the darkness. We cling to it. Jesus says we love it. Human beings are meaning needing creatures. And we're not grabbing on to God. We're grabbing on to something else. And one of the most curious things happens with our false idols. Every time one of those false idols fails us, what do we want to do? We want to grab onto it tighter and tighter and tighter. If we just hold on to it tighter, maybe it won't fail us this time. This is how the work of darkness often works inside of the human heart. So we end up believing what is false false to our own destruction so as Paul walks through this he tells the Thessalonians don't be worried don't be shaken don't be deceived these things have to happen and here's how it's going to happen but God is still sovereign and there still is a way through this as a child of God so instead of that kind of deception Paul wants to put out there for followers of Jesus Christ And the church wants to put out there for whosoever will that there is truth to love and there is truth that saves. Paul wants the church to stand firm, to stay close to the truth and to teach it and to proclaim it so that others may be a part of the truth of Jesus Christ. So here's how Paul wraps this up for us. Here's how now he talks to the church after we've dealt with all that kind of stuff. Here's what he has to say beginning in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. How often in these two books does Paul just keep saying this about the Thessalonian church? It's precious. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter, 1 Thessalonians. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I want you to be okay. I want you to be comforted. and I want you to keep on walking forward in the good work that God has given you to do. Fear breaks that cycle. Fear causes us to retreat from the good things that God has to do inside of our lives. He says, I don't want fear. I want comfort instead, and I want you to move forward in what God has given you to do. But we ought to always to give thanks to God for you. He gives thanks again, specifically for what God is doing inside of their lives. He saved them, and he is bringing them closer to himself. So Paul actually says, and this is part of the work of God inside of the lives of his children, inside of the conviction of the human heart as he brings people to himself, God brings people closer to himself in belief in the truth, as he puts it. Guys, when deception threatens us or grows in influence or power in the world around us, it is all the more important for Christians to be even closer to the truth of Jesus Christ. So if there are things that happen within us that bother us, if there are things that happen around us that want to cause anxiety and fear, what Paul says, here's what we need to do. We need to actually draw closer and closer to the truth itself. That's where we're going to find comfort and stability and meaning that's what he wants us to cling to. I'm going to talk for a couple of minutes about what truth is. I mean, if you had to answer the question, what is truth?, How would you answer that question? Don't answer it now because I'm going to give you the answer. I'm kidding. For the Christian, there's at least two good ways of talking about what truth is. And here's the first. Truth is reality as God has created it. It's just reality. It's not my reality. It's not my feeling about what reality ought to be. Truth is reality as God has created it. The teacher Dallas Willard, to paraphrase him, he puts it like this, truth is what you bump into when you're wrong. It's what you bump into when you're wrong about things. We actually do ourselves no favors believing what is false, and the human heart wants, because of sin, to believe what is false. But we don't do ourselves any favors when we do that. We don't get to believe whatever we want to believe about what is true. We don't get to pick and choose what is true, even though we try over and over and over. In fact, we do ourselves significant harm when we try to choose what is true. There's a word that we used a few weeks ago, post-truth. The Oxford Dictionary every year picks a word of the year. In 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. And it's intended to sort of describe some major cultural events in the year and so forth. Post-truth is the state in which people choose what is true based on their feelings instead of facts and critical reasoning. So we live now in a post-truth world where people would rather choose what is true based on their feelings, right? Instead of reality itself. Truth is reality as God has designed it. We can't choose our own truth about five plus seven. If we do, we're going to bump against the reality of our math teacher, right? We don't just get to pick and choose that one. We also do not get to pick and choose what we think is true about God. Because if we do, we're going to bump into God eventually. Reality is truth is reality as God has created it. But then secondly, for the Christian, this is really important for us to understand. So it's reality But truth is Jesus Christ himself. It's no simple statement. It is a powerful statement. Truth is Jesus Christ himself. In response to his disciples and some of their concerns about what was going to happen to him on the cross, in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I am Truth, Jesus says. Staying as close as we can to Jesus Christ, to His work, His power, and His word, friends, it is freedom for the human soul. Staying close to the truth in Jesus Christ is not a prison that we put ourselves into. It is freedom for the human soul, freedom to be everything God has created us to be. Instead of all of the deception and destruction Paul's been talking about in chapter 2, Jesus says this in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth in the truth will set you free. So Paul says, church, I need you to stand firm in these things. And I need you to hold on to the things that you have been taught by us. The time that we were with you personally and we had these conversations, stick to that. The things that we write to you, stick to those things. Church of Jesus Christ, stick to the word of God. Stay close to the truth. Learn to love the truth of God as revealed in his word and as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that the time will come and times will come when the follower of Jesus Christ will feel every pressure possible to drift away from the faith, to be tempted by faithlessness, to be tempted by humanity's God substitutes. But Christians learn to endure, to stand firm, to hold to the things that they have been taught. And then the church learns to pass along what they have been taught, from those who have been Christians for a long time to those who have just become Christians. And from one generation to the next, guys, this is just part of what the church is, spo- is supposed to do, is we teach the faith when we gather together, one to another. The truth that Jesus saves is still a life-giving truth, right? There's nothing old about that story. It is still a life-giving truth. So here are a couple of thoughts. We're asking that question through this sermon this morning. What does it mean to learn how to not be deceived by these things as they come and when they come? What does it mean to learn to actually love the truth of God? So here are just three very quick thoughts, things that I think all of us need to do if we're not already doing them. First of all, read the truth. Get to know the word of God. Be reading through this thing. If you need to start reading through this thing, start reading through this thing just one piece at a time. Maybe you're gonna just have this voracious appetite for the word of God. And let me warn you, this happens. When you begin to engage with the word of God prayerfully and attentively, you're gonna find yourself in the word of God for a very long time. This is part of the power of the word of God. Read the truth, get to know it. This is God's revelation to us. So be in Scripture, friends. So read the truth. Secondly, be around people of the truth. Be around the people of God as we together spend time with truth. It is good for us to sing next to each other about God. It is good for us to gather together in large groups and small groups to talk about the Word of God and how it makes its way into our lives and how our lives change as a result of it. Church, is an important spiritual discipline, not just for my spiritual maturity, but it turns out it's an important discipline for my spiritual protection as well. Be around people of the truth. And then thirdly, um, Heather and I have heard Ravi Zacharias use this phrase before, and I like it. Internalize the truth. Truth is both known and lived. To know the truth without living it means it just really hasn't done its job inside of us. So we need to be intentional about setting our mind on the things of God's word and of his truth in conforming our lives to it, finding obedience where there's disobedience, seeking the work of God in our lives where maybe we've hidden ourselves from God. We need to internalize it. We need to be intentional about making this a part of who we are and what we believe and what we do with ourselves. So read it, be around people of the truth and internalize the truth. With all of this, I just love this. Paul breaks into prayer again. This is the second time in this really short letter he prays for this church. So this is our prayer. For us, this is our prayer for the church of Jesus Christ. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal worry and anxiety about who the man of lawlessness will be. Gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Isn't that beautiful? May God grant us good hope through grace, the work of God in our lives. And may He comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Keep on doing what God has called you to do. He will empower you to do it. Stay close to the truth. and May God have his way in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.